Well, children, I would like to dismiss you, those who have registered for children's worship. You can gather over there in the corner with Miss Amy um, and go worship the Lord together. For those of you who are here uh, and remain, I'd invite you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. This morning, it's my privilege and joy to open God's word with you. And our focus this morning will be just on three verses right here at the middle of Paul's letter. In chapter 3, 11 through 13. These verses really, while you're turning there, uh, mark the halfway point in, in this brief letter. And it's at this point where Paul begins to uh, prepare to shift gears to uh, some new topics. And in doing so... He offers a quick summary of really what is a summary of the whole book and what he's been saying so far. So far, we've seen Paul in these three chapters celebrating the work of God in the lives of these Thessalonians. He is, it's a a letter that's really in many ways unlike 1 Corinthians or unlike Galatians in that the tone is incredibly positive and very joyful. Paul has reason to celebrate because he has seen the work of God in the, in the lives of these saints. Work that, that God has started through the work of Paul and Timothy and is now continuing even in their absence. But Paul is also looking ahead. In the second half of this letter, we're going to see that even though Paul is certainly encouraged by what God has done, he's not content with the spiritual progress of these saints. He's actually eager to see more growth. And he wants to see these saints be prepared for the second coming of Christ. And according to Paul, that means more growth, more holiness, and more love. And so I invite you to notice also as we read in just a moment that these words are actually the words of a prayer. They're one of three prayers in this letter. Thessalonians opens with a prayer, and then there's one right here in the middle, and then it closes with a prayer. So I believe these words reveal to us the the depth of Paul's heart, not only for the saints there at Thessalonica many years ago, but also for the saints here at Trinity Baptist Church. So I invite you to direct your attention to your text. We'll read verses 11 through 13 of chapter 3. Paul writes, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Let's pray. Father, we're praying that you would perform the miracle that we ask every week, that you would move in our hearts and let the hearing of your word produce a harvest of faith. So God, I ask that you would powerfully work by your spirit, that your, strength, that your church would be strengthened, that those who are a part of the family of God would hear and believe today. May Christ be exalted in our presence, we pray. Amen. Now before I go any further, I'd like to just give you the summary, the takeaway of what, what I believe this text is saying. And more specifically, I'd love to try to summarize what I believe that God is saying to the saints here at Trinity Baptist Church through these words. The main idea of this passage, church, is that if you are a Christian, 
then God's plan for you is to make you the kind of person who loves other people perfectly, without a tinge of selfishness or pride. And since none of us are there yet, God is calling us to make progress in this, in this perfect love every day. Another way, a shorter way to say that would be the destiny of the Christian is perfect love, and so strive towards that. Church, the destiny of the Christian is perfect love, and so strive towards that. Now that's the takeaway, but I'd like to try to show you how I got there so you can see it yourself. We'll do that by seeing two main points. And the first point in this text is this, that holiness consists of perfect love. Listen carefully. Holiness consists of perfect love. Now, as I was studying this text, it took me a little while to see this. But once I did, uh, the rest began to fall into place. Remember that this is a prayer, and it's a prayer where Paul prays for three things. First of all, he wants to be reunited with these saints. Verse 11, he prays that God would direct our way to you. He wants to be reunited. Secondly, Paul is praying that God would make this church increase in their love for one another. Verse 12, he's praying about their relationships. And third, we see Paul praying that these saints would be fixed or established in holiness, especially in the light of the return of Christ there in verse 13. That is, Paul is wanting, he's longing for these saints to reach a level of maturity on earth that will prepare them to stand before God in judgment. Now, this may all seem pretty straightforward, but I really want you to notice one little clause in verse 13. Look back down at your Bibles and notice, if you have the ESV especially, there's these two words in the ESV, so that. So that, there at the beginning of verse 13, this is what uh, smart people call a purpose clause. It's connecting an idea before it to the idea that follows. It's signifying that Paul sees a connection between his second request in verse 12 and his third request in, in verse 13. Now, I know the grammar can bore us, and so come back with me. Let me try to explain what this means. Paul is praying that the church would increase in love so that they would be blameless and holy before God. Did you hear the purpose clause? Paul is praying that they would increase in love so that they would be blameless and holy. Paul wanted the church's relationships to improve so that when they stand before God and when their hearts are exposed, they can stand with confidence. Now this, I think, is a remarkable insight because it shows us that Paul is holding up love as the highest measure of Christian holiness. You see that? He's saying that love is the essence of holiness. He's holding it up. To love is to be holy, and to be holy is to love. Now when I started thinking about that, my first instinct was to say, okay, kind of hesitated a little bit. I mean, obviously love is a big deal. We all, everyone agrees with that. But surely more is needed than love to be blameless, I thought. I mean, what about faith? What about hope, right? But then I started thinking about the teachings of Jesus. You remember how Jesus actually summarized the entirety of the law in just two commandments. The call to love God and love people. 
That's what he says in Matthew chapter 22, verse 40, where he says, On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. Loving God and loving people perfectly, that fulfills the law. You remember Jesus said that the first commandment is actually like the second commandment. That loving God and loving people are closely connected. Loving God is loving people. And loving people is a way of loving God. But it goes beyond the teachings of Jesus. Even Paul said in several places, you'll remember in chapter 13 of Romans, verse 10, Paul said, love is the fulfilling of the law. So if you want to fulfill the law, love and love perfectly. He goes on to say in 13 verse 8, that the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. It's incredible. Just think about what this means. When Jesus returns, and when you and I stand in judgment before a holy God, on the day when every motive of our hearts and every thought and every deed is put up on the big screen before the roving eyes of a holy God, on the day when the work of our lives is tested, what will God look for? Love. He will look for love. The one God will judge to be holy is the one he determines to be blameless in love. To be blameless means to be without fault. So God's looking for the one who is without fault in how he loves God and how he loves others. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but I'm starting to get nervous because that, that causes problems for me. Who in the world loves like that? This, of course, the fact that Paul is praying for love, this would actually make more sense of why he's doing that, why he's praying for more love. I've mentioned that one of the most striking things about this book, that really the whole book, is that Paul spends three whole chapters talking about how great they're doing, how, much, how encouraged he is by God's work, and how he was so happy to hear the report of Timothy, of their faith and their love. And then he stops to pray, more love. God, these people need more love. This is call for us this morning. Now, we don't have time in, in just one service to, to, to dive into the Bible's rich teaching on the nature of love. We'll see two examples that Paul gives here in a moment. But if I could just give you a verse to, to let the Bible's definition of love ring in your ears, I could do John 3.16, but this morning I'm going to do 1 John 3.16. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. A text like that reminds us that one who loves is one whose life is characterized by sacrificing for other people. One who loves is a person who cares not only about his own interests, but also significantly about the interests of other people. To the same degree that we care about the interests of others, we care about our own interests. And though we can't go all the way through what the Bible teaches about love, I thought it'd be helpful to look at the two examples Paul gives us. There are two specific examples of how Paul loves in this passage. You'll notice there in verse 12, he says, he's praying that they would abound in love. How? As we do for you. Do you see that? Here and all throughout this letter, Paul is encouraging the church to actually look at he and Timothy. 
to use them as examples. He's, he's holding up their lives as an example to imitate. You want to know how to love? Watch us. So we should ask, right, how do we see Paul loving, especially in this passage? I think there's two ways. I think the first thing we see is that Paul, Paul shows us how to love because he loves being in the company of Christians. That's one of the ways we, that's what we learn about love is that Paul loves to be with other Christians. You see that in verse 11. Paul's first request is that God would direct his way to these saints. He longed to be with them. As I've read and reread this book, I've, I've found Paul's longing to be with these Christians almost embarrassing. If you read it a lot, you'll notice, I mean, it's like over-the-top awkward. Have you ever been in one of those awkward moments where someone's like more in the moment than someone else? Like Paul, that's how it feels sometimes. Like Paul is just longing to be with these saints. You can see it there in 2.17. He has this incredible desire to be face-to-face with the saints. What does face-to-face mean? It means with them. He said that being apart from them is like being torn away. Like, a, like an appendage being ripped off of a body. In, in chapter 3, verse 5, you can see that there, Paul was so eager to know about their spiritual condition, he couldn't take it anymore. He said, when I could bear it no longer, I sent Timothy to learn about your faith. Friends, I know that we are living in a COVID and post-COVID era, but this is such a good reminder for us that Healthy Christian love cannot stand being apart from the body. Healthy Christian love cannot stand to be told to stay home. And that's because being torn away, being separated from the body, being separated from the church hurts. It should hurt. It's being torn away, pulled away from those that we love. And that's because we recognize that showing love really is limited significantly by distance, and by space. I had to take it out, but chapter 2, verse 18, you remember how Paul was, he said that Satan kept, he hindered Paul from being reunited with, uh, with, these, with these brothers and sisters at Thessalonica. In other words, for Paul, being hindered to be with the body was satanic. You see that there in the text? And that's because love requires presence. Love requires presence. True love is incarnational. Love shows up. It's present. I think one of the most important lessons I've learned as a pastor and as a counselor and as a a Christian trying to live out my faith is that love is often simply about being in the right place at the right time. It's not always about having the perfect thing to say. It's about being present. And for the Christian, the right place is with other Christians. Because it's within the context of the body of Christ, that's where we are conformed to the image of God. That's where we learn to grow. That's where we learn to love. For us, this means that God is calling Christians to intentionally organize our lives around Christian relationships. To strategically build our schedules, where we live, how we spend our time, what we do around the context of the local church. There in verse 12, Paul's talking about growing in love. That love is to be exercised among one another. Friends, that's the church. 
It's the local church. That is the context where we show love to others primarily. And I think this is an important point for us to just stop and, and recognize that when we gather here for our corporate worship, what we're, what we're primarily gathering to do is to hear the word of God and to respond. This is not primarily a relational context. Right? You're not having conversations right now. You know, I appreciate that for those of you who aren't, right? I pre- this isn't a very relational sort of gathering. That's not what these services are designed to do. For us at Trinity, the primary context for Christian relationships in the local church is in our small groups, our Sunday school classes. And friends, I believe that God is calling us to imitate Paul's love by being with other Christians. It is so easy in a big fellowship like this to hide, to slide in, to slide out, and to have no loving relational engagements with other Christians. It's really easy to love people that you don't talk to, right? You don't have to, they don't talk to you, right? That's totally different. God's calling us to engage, to imitate Paul by being with other Christians. But of course, love doesn't merely mean that we're with other Christians, right? Love does things. Love does stuff. Specifically, what we see Paul doing is that he's concerned with the spiritual well-being of his brothers and sisters. That's maybe the second way I would point out true love to you. Love is concerned with the well-being of brothers and sisters the spiritual well-being of others. Paul is obviously an excellent model of this. In this letter, he is, uh, this is a prayer that, as we saw last week, his concern was to fill up, to supply what was lacking in their faith. Paul knew them well enough to know that they lacked in faith, and then he sacrificed and gave and engaged and was intentional about trying to meet that need. Friends, perfect love means that you have an active concern for the spiritual well-being of other people, particularly in your local church. If you're not trying to learn how others are doing spiritually, if you're not trying to uh, hear about their Bible reading, if you don't care about their prayer life, their walk with the Lord, if you're not caring about the marriages of others or their parenting struggles or their thought life, you're not loving people very well because true love cares about spiritual development of others. Friends, this is not a rotary club. This is not the community center. The church is different. I think this past year, one of the things that we've learned in this divided age is that it is very tempting to be more concerned about other people's politics than it is about their spiritual condition. It's very tempting to be more concerned with how they voted or how they're thinking about the issues than whether or not they're backsliding in their relationship with Jesus or whether they've wandered away from the faith. Friends, I would love to just leave you with a question this morning since time is limited. If I could just leave you with a question for your heart, who are the people in your life that you've taken a personal interest in helping grow? Who are the people that that you could point to and say, I am working to help this person take one step towards following Jesus. That is a way that we show love, especially when we do it sacrificially. Now, I need to keep moving, so let me come to a second major lesson from this text I'd like to draw your attention to, and that's this. No matter how mature you are, you still need to make more progress. No matter how much you've grown in your walk with the Lord, 
God wants us to make more progress. We've already seen this pattern in Paul's thinking. Another example, chapter 3, verse 6, Paul is celebrating the goodness of their faith and love. And then in verse 10, he says they lack, right? We pointed that out. Then in verse 12, he prays that the Lord would make them increase and abound. I wish we had time to go through the, the weight of those words. How much love do you need to abound in love? Well, you need more than the situation requires. How often have you been in a difficult situation and thought, I have more love for this crazy person than I need, right? We don't feel that often. That's what he's striving for. And then in verse 1 of chapter 4, sorry, I'll get ahead to Mark's sermon next week, Paul urges them to walk in a way that pleases God and then says, just like you're doing, look at it, verse 1, do it more and more. Do it more and more. I love this pastoral move that Paul just did. He celebrates the ways Christians are growing, and then he calls them to grow more, right? He encourages them by saying, look what God is doing in your life, and then says, let's grow more. This is a wonderful example for us to see how we can build involvement into the lives of other Christians, to come alongside and to take enough time to learn and see how people are growing, what God's doing in their life, to hear about their prayer life, to hear about what they're reading, to hear about how they're struggling, and then to encourage them, to come alongside and say, look, God is at work. Be encouraged, brother. Be encouraged to sister. And then at the same time to say, keep going. Keep striving. Keep loving. Friends, the call of Christian fellowship is not to eat chicken pie together, but it's to help one another to continue to be faithful in the difficulties of our lives, to keep battling sin. We need that encouragement. I need that encouragement. You need that encouragement. This text helps us understand why, and this is the most important point on this. Paul understands Jesus is coming. Isn't that good news, church? Jesus is coming. Paul knows that one day soon, at the coming of Jesus Christ, all of his church there in Thessalonica and all the saints here at Trinity Baptist Church, we will one day stand before a holy God in judgment. And according to Paul, the quality of our love, our holiness, will be examined. God will examine us. It will be put on the balance. It will be put out on the scales. All the motives and the actions and the thoughts of our hearts. And friends, though we might be very skilled at looking like good Christian people, right? that's often the first skill you learn, isn't it? Come to Christ and start to learn, how do I need to look, right? Many of us are skilled in looking like righteous people. God is not interested in that. That day in judgment... Appearing to be righteous is not enough because the Bible says God is not deceived or mocked because God judges the heart and that will be what is exposed and that is what the Lord is concerned with. I bring up the heart because Paul does. He's praying for a particular kind of hearts in Christians. You can be a Christian and not have this kind of heart. And so Paul's praying that they would have this kind of heart, a heart that is established, blameless, in holy love. You probably know, friends, that in the Bible, the heart is not an organ, but rather it is a metaphor for the inner man, 
It is pointing to the control center of your life. It's the part of you that wants things, that desires, that craves, that lusts. It's the part of you that has longings, and it's the thought center of your person. The Bible teaches that all of our actions, all of our words even, flow out of our heart, and they expose what's going on in the heart. And God measures not only the words and not only the actions, but he measures the motive. He measures what we're loving and how we're loving. Just the other day, I had an opportunity to love, and I didn't want to do it. I muttered something under my breath, and I thought, "Uh uh-oh, God sees. God's not just measuring what I do, because I can do the right thing sometimes. But he's measuring how I do it and what I want. I think one of the most profound truths in this text is that it teaches us that the quality of our love reveals how ready we are to meet Jesus. How effectively, how sacrificially, how frequently, and how faithfully faithfully we love is the measure of our Christian maturity. Our loving, our failure to love, our hate, our anger, our words, our constant, real-time, ever-present snapshots of how we are progressing and becoming like Jesus. In our home, when I sin against my children, uh, which I do quite often, I confess to them and I tell them, I say, sorry that I did this. I was not loving. I was thinking more about my comfort than yours. Daddy still needs Jesus. I still need Jesus because I don't love enough. My words are a reminder to me that I'm not like Jesus yet. Friends, our words, our deeds, our thoughts are constantly reminding us. Did you know that God has placed difficult people in your lives? And God has placed difficult circumstances in your lives and people who hurt you and slander you and demand from you? Some of you are dealing with caring for aging parents and it's a huge toll on your life. God is doing all of these things to see how you will respond. And in our responses, it is a progress report of how much we are like or unlike Jesus. Jesus, of course, abounded in love for sinners. Jesus overflowed in love for sinners. When love was needed, he had love left over. And friends, every relational response, every thought, every deed of Jesus was blameless in love. So this raises the question for us, if this is what's going to be on the table at the day of judgment, who can stand? Who in the world among us can stand? Who among us, when the light of God's gaze shines into our hearts, is not full of shame at how selfish we really are? You know how selfish you are. We see that in our hearts. Who among us would not be guilty and shy away at the presence of of how we act in our own interests, even when we pretend to do otherwise. Who among us can stand before God and say, yep, I love other people fully. When people hurt me, when people slander me, when people abuse me, my heart overflows with love for them. Who among us can say that? Or who among us can say our love is constantly increasing? That day after day, we are constantly improving in our love for others. That we have love that doesn't fade or change when we get hungry. Anyone ever notice that? 
I'm a loving person until I get hungry. You notice that, right? Who among us have love, has love that doesn't fade, that only grows, it never wavers, no matter what the circumstance or demand? None of us. So church, this is why it is my joy yet again to tell you the good news of Jesus Christ. This is why it's my joy to tell you of him who consists of perfect love and showed it, who longed to be with us so much so that he became one of us, who took an interest in our spiritual condition, not only praying for us, but he even took on our iniquities, our sin, and our guilt, and he took on the full weight of the wrath of God that you and I deserve. Jesus set aside his own interest and died for you and me to show us perfect love. And friends, I want to tell you today that no one has ever loved like Jesus, which means that none of us can stand before God at the second coming of Christ and on our own and be okay. None of us. I mean, doesn't your marriage show that, right? Doesn't your parenting show that? Doesn't your caring for aging parents show that? Doesn't your gossip show that? What about your text messages? Friends, our records of love are tarnished, even on our best days. But the good news of the gospel is that if you turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ, you get your record expunged and his record credited to you. All of his perfect love is given to you. We call this the wonderful doctrine of justification, where God declares that we are right before him. I confess there's a tremendous amount of tension in this text. I hope you notice. I hope you're feeling the tension that God does it and yet we're called to do it, right? That Paul prays and yet we're called to grow. Remember, Paul's actually praying that these saints would grow, Christians would grow in such a way that they would be blameless before God at the second coming. But then we just said we can't do that, right? We're going to fall short of that. And, and then if, if God has actually declared us to be righteous, then what's the big deal? Aren't we good? Plus, who's Paul asking to do all this? He's asking God. It's a prayer. He says, God, make us increase and abound. So what's left to do? Friends, this is where we feel the tension of sanctification and justification right here in the text. And I believe that this is God's design. That God has declared us to be holy in love. He's declared us to be holy, and yet he calls us to grow, to make progress living out that love. I once heard a story about a man who was watching the artist Michelangelo. He was watching him work on one of his sculptures. And he came back some days later, and he noticed, I don't think he did anything. He didn't see any perceivable change. And he asked the artist, he said, have you been doing nothing since I saw you last? And the master artist was indignant. He said, of course not. I've retouched this. I've polished that. I've softened this feature and brought out this muscle. I've given more expression to this lip and more energy to this limb. And the non-artist said, well, well, these are just trifles. It may be so, replied Michelangelo, but remember that trifles make perfection and that perfection is no trifle. Friends, I share the story with you as a reminder of God's agenda for us. You and I might be content with a little dose of Christian character, with a little church attendance, with a little bit of service, 
But God is not content until we have been transformed into the image of his perfect son. And Paul understands that these two things go together, that if you're in Christ, God's given you this new identity of righteousness and love. He's declared you righteous, and one day he will complete it, but it's not yet. And so for today, Paul's spurring us on. It's like he's saying, Christian, this is who you are, so live like it. A few months ago, I finished reading a book that I think illustrates this concept. It's a It's a book called Atomic Habits by author James Clear. And one of the things that he suggests is that we can grow in our habits if we connect habits to this idea of identity. Identity. Habits, he says, are a way of becoming the kind of person that you want to be. And so if you have that kind of person in mind, you can practice being that kind of person. So, for example, do you want to be the kind of person that hits the snooze button or the kind of person that works hard? So don't hit the snooze button. Do you want to be the kind of person that eats fast food four times a week or packs a lunch and eats healthy? Do you want to be the kind of person that goes to the gym or the kind of person who binges on Netflix? The idea is that each time you, you act on a habit, you're casting an, a vote for the identity that you want. The goal is to use future identity as a motivation for building good habits. And so each time we practice good habits, we actually enjoy the fruits of those good habits of that identity. I think that's awfully close to what's going on in this tension. That in Christ, God has justified us. He's declared us to have the same record of righteous love that Jesus has. The man who loved those who hated him, who died for his enemies. The man who loved God perfectly and always obeyed. That's the righteousness we get. That's who we are. So live like that now, he calls. Every time we love like this, every time we do this, we're casting a vote for the identity that God has given us, and we're enjoying the fruits, the assurance that we are God's children. Paul desires that for this church, that they would know the assurance of what it's like to be a child of God. When he's praying that their hearts would be established, that's what he's praying for. Friends, every time we love, We're casting a vote. We are living the identity that God has given us in Christ. We're proclaiming the reality that I once loved no one but myself, but Jesus has saved me and changed me. So now I am free to love others. And I may have a long way to go. I may fail in a few minutes. But this God who has made me to be righteous will, by God's grace, complete his work in me. And one day we'll stand before him righteous, all because of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, we are not perfect in character, not one of us, but we are perfect in position. So let's live like that. You bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, we pray that you would impart these truths to our hearts, that you would help us to believe what you've declared to be true and help us to live into that identity. Give us clear help on how we need to love the people around us. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.